Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Eric Wright, the host of your Disco Posse podcast. I've got a really fun one that's coming up. This is going to be a really cool chat. We go deep into tech as well and the business side and open source, really, really fun. Before we get started, I want to give a big shout out and a thanks to the fine folks that support us. Uh, this episode is sponsored by our good friends over at Veeam Software. So whatever you need for your data protection needs, whether it's on the cloud, whether it's SaaS, Office 365, Microsoft Teams, and in fact, even your cloud native backup. That's right. You got to back that thing up, even though you thought you'd built it all so that it's completely ephemeral. Hey, truth is, you actually have a lot that you need to back up there. So with that, make sure you go check out Veeam Software at vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. And it's a uh, number one, they're really cool people. And number two, it lets them know that old Disco Posse sent you over there. So again, go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. I'm a user and a fan of the, both the team and the platform myself. So I definitely stand behind their work. Also, this episode is brought to you by the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals. This is something that I created. It's an ebook and an audiobook and a course. Uh, there's lots of really, really great stuff. What's the point? The point is how do you make sure that you connect to your customers, prospects, and even each other better and easier? So this is bringing all of my experience as well as that of my peer group all together in a very easy to consume book it's an ebook. You can download it right now, and then you can jump right in. You get an audiobook read by yours truly, and you also get access to the brand new upcoming course. So make sure you jump in. If you go to velocityclosing.com, that will redirect you right to the landing spot for that. So go check it out. Go to velocityclosing.com. Only 27 bucks, and you get everything. So make sure you get in before, uh, before we change the deal. All right, with this, let's jump in. I want to give a huge thanks and welcome to Thomas Graff, who's the CTO and co-founder of Isovalent. It's a fantastic story. Thomas covers a lot, both technical and business and open source and everything in between. So check it out. Hello, my name is Thomas. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Isovalent, and you are listening to the Disco Posse podcast. And from there, we, we jump right in. Uh, so Thomas, thank you very much for joining today. This is really exciting for me uh, personally on a lot of fronts and for my audience on also equal amounts of fronts because I've been watching you, uh, your team, your company, and your approach for quite a while. And so by a, a, a beautiful you know, marriage of things that came together, I got a chance to be able to, to get you on. So thank you very much for joining. Um, for folks that aren't uh, familiar with you yet, uh, if you want to just give yourself a full introduction uh, and then we're going to jump in, we'll talk about Isovalent, the, the Cilium project and, and work outwards from there. There's really a ton of stuff we can cover that's going to be very interesting. Great. Uh, first of all, thanks a lot for having me, Eric. I'm really excited to talk more about Silim and eBPF. My name is Thomas Graf. Um, I'm based in Switzerland, so I grew up in Switzerland. Uh, I stayed in Switzerland because of the skiing, but I have been involved with 
mostly U.S. companies in my in my in my professional career. So I've spent ten years um, at Red Hat doing Linux kernel development. So that's my background. I have been a Linux kernel developer, very low level, focusing mostly on networking and security. So I've worked on IPv4, IPv6, um, traffic control, routing, TCP, um, and so on. Many, many different things. IP tables, firewalls, pretty much anything that is somehow related to Linux networking. Um, then after that, I spent a couple of years at Cisco during the OpenStack days working on Open vSwitch together with the Open vSwitch team. So I've been a, a core member of the Open vSwitch team. And then while, while I have already been following eBPF as a kernel technology, saw that this will change the world. Uh, so started the Cilium project um, with a couple of friends and that eventually evolved into a full-blown company that we're, that we're now running. And the to talk about that one, your your approach is always very interesting. And, and I have a, a big admiration for your really strong focus on using open technologies, open communities, uh, very positive impact stuff that you're doing at the code level and at the community level, and then wrapping a commercial organization around it, which ultimately has an even greater give back that it you know creates commercial opportunities for people, brings jobs. Uh, it's a it's a really interesting balance of being an open tech company and being a viable startup and, you know, and growing a, a, an organization. So, you know, when, when did that kind of come into your, your mindsets that, that this is where you wanted to really push your focus into staying strong on, on open technologies? Yeah, I think this is this is the biggest shift over the last couple of years that happened to my personal life is in, in the beginning, I was I was immediately sold on open source. I was I was a full blown evangelist around open source back in the days when it was still Linux, Linux versus Windows. Um, and it was very clear that from a from a software development perspective, from a moral perspective, open source is the way to go regarding software development. And I've always been using open source software. I've always spent my career developing open source software and so on. And then there was some point in my career where I, where I wanted the next level challenge as well. And I saw creating a company, creating something that has more impact than just usage um, as the next potential challenge. And I got me really interested. At the same time, I did not want to uh, disabandoned my my open source background like it was very clear from the beginning that whatever i would do it has to do it has to be built on the foundation of open source um that was it was not difficult to convince myself because i was coming from um from red hat and i saw red hat grow from tiny into a multi-billion dollar company so to me i i didn't actually challenge myself too much um that open source would not be a viable business model i mean it has been, I've seen it working and I've seen it be successful. Um, and at the time when we started, there were already several other companies that have been insanely uh, um, successful around open source. It doesn't mean that uh, open source uh, and business success come together automatically. It's obviously still a big challenge. Um, and it's it's a major part of my of my of my daily work life right now to make to make the two meet to, to, to make the two ends meet well together and make sure that we're both successful from an open source perspective, which we which we definitely are, and also uh, successful from a business perspective, which we definitely are as well. Well, and to talk about a business perspective as well, I should give congratulations here for a recent announcement of news. Uh, so you've received uh, funding uh, through Andreessen Horowitz 
Martin Casado, uh, uh, mm-hmm. who, who led that uh, round, uh, and so that's that was fantastic news. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I've got a, such a massive respect for Martin and, and all that he's done, and of course you've got Dan Wendland on the team as well. You've mm-hmm. you've really got such a straight a great team, and uh, Neil Jacques, who is your uh, uh, runs the marketing side of of things. So I'm I'm a longtime fan of Neela. He and I have have rode a bike together many uh, a couple of times <laughs> here and he he left me in the dust in many places which was fantastic he's a you know so really your your people that you've brought are, have a great history uh in open technologies and so it's really exciting to watch that come together and you know i definitely wish you lots of future success as well even beyond what you've already achieved so far so uh but let's talk about uh, the ebpf the sort of the the light that you saw that mm-hmm. you realized was going to be the 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 bright light that needed to be captured and and used how did this technology and how did this as a protocol become important to you in seeing a problem that needed to be solved i think yeah it's it's a it's a part, i think it's a per, the perfect question it's exactly what matters um and there's two angles to it so i've been i've been involved in developing infrastructure software for, I think, over 15 years at this point. Like initially it's during the, the physical server age, the virtual, during the virtualization age. Um, and I've always been on the Linux kernel side. And I've, 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 I've usually been in a position where I was involved in a team to develop the, the, the building blocks, which would later be used to develop the actual infrastructure layer whether that's a sort of networking technology, firewall technology, visibility technology. And a fundamental limitation has always been that, A, it's very difficult to modify the Linux kernel. You need, uh, you need, you need software engineers with a lot of experience. Um, you need to convince the entire Linux kernel community to, that your change, whatever you want to do is right for the entire Linux kernel um, community. So. Every, like everybody from the, the server field to the embedded field, um, you need to convince everybody. And then it makes it even more difficult because once you have the changes in, it will take years and years and years for that technology to actually make it into the hands of the users. So what, what happened, I think there was a moment um, where this became very obvious to me uh, during the early, early days of OpenShift, right? That's OpenShift. I notice what are the what are the building blocks that OpenShift is using to implement what it wanted to implement, and it was features I had written eight or ten years ago, and it made it so obvious that this is not a model that we can continue because at the point when you're building these building blocks in the, in, in the Linux kernel, you have no idea what the future use cases will be. At the time we wrote those building blocks, there were no containers, namespaces just like came up, right? They, there was like very, very early days, IBM and, and, and others invested into namespaces, but there was no notion of a container. So whatever building blocks we built back then were, were built for a different use case. And this always led to abuse of the building blocks. And when I saw eBPF, to me, this changed everything because I, I immediately saw, and I was obviously not the only one, like obviously the, the, the other people involved in eBPF saw that same value. I saw this can have the same impact as something like JavaScript had for browsers. All of a sudden, you don't need to ship new versions of the browser every time that you want to extend a bit of functionality. You can program your browser with JavaScript. And eBPF is exactly the same to the Linux kernel. Obviously, it's a lot faster than JavaScript, but from an impact perspective, it's very similar. It's, it's the programmable, 
programmability and the safety aspect, which make it incredibly powerful. And it, it fundamentally changes how the building blocks or how the Linux kernel development can be done. You can dynamically load the code. You don't need to merge source code into the Linux kernel. You can, you can run bytecode. You can run logic in the, in the Linux kernel. You don't have to wait for a new kernel version to make it into the hands of a user. An existing Linux kernel version with an eBPF runtime can take on any program. So this changes everything. And instead of uh, waiting for, or instead of using building blocks that have been written eight years ago, you can, you can write your own building blocks right now for the use cases that matter right now. And this, is, this has changed everything. There's an interesting balance that you just sort of highlighted that there are a lot of core technologies that have, that have a beautiful effect years later uh, because they have to sort of be vetted out. We look at stuff like, especially overlay protocols became one of the, the real sort of battlegrounds for which would be the the one that would hold the standard going forward. And people, of course, forget that when you when you have like an R they they use an RFC as like a marker. Well, it's, it's request for comments. It's actually not it's not a finalized standard. It's just the most broadly used of other RFCs. You know, and we saw that you know with everything in the networking such as BGP and you know and and people will still war over whether that's the right choice or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you get into eBPF, same thing where really the foundations have been laid and now we can exploit those foundations for, you know, in, in a positive way. I say exploit sounds like a not a naughty term because it's, you know, seems negative, but it is very much like leverage and use that capability for today's use cases. Now, yes. when you, when you're developing that low layer, because you've got such a broad history of being at the foundation at the core how do you design something at that time and think of use cases that like how do you introduce a use case into your product management sort of mind trying to think further ahead because you know it won't actually be touched for potentially years it's a, it's an ex, it's an excellent question it's actually i was not aware that product management existed for a very 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 long time because in the world of kernel development there's not really such a thing because the delay is so long that whatever whatever customer impact or whatever customer needs are around, it's not really what you should be thinking about as a kernel level upper in the traditional model. Because whatever you're building, it needs to it, it needs to be applicable for for many 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 years to come, and that's usually not really what what like the core of product management often is. Right, product management is often a lot more short term focused. Uh, driving product needs for immediate or based on immediate customer needs. So I was actually not aware of how traditional product management works in a software company because it simply concept that does does not exist. But now if we have eBPF, you can think about the eBPF runtime development, which still happens in the kernel. That is that is still with this long-term vision, with this broad horizon. But then as you leverage eBPF and as you leverage projects built on top of eBPF, you can now get into a into a mental model where you can actually address customer needs right away. And I will, I will make a kind of an example here. We saw a steady and sharp increase in user space networking in Linux just after the virtualization age has happened. And a big part of that was because Linux networking has been focusing entirely on the server use case forever. Like the typical Google use case, I'm running thousands and thousands and thousands of servers. 
on that servers I'm running applications, they need a TCP IP stack to, to, to talk to the outside world. That's it. That's what Linux has been optimized for. And all of a sudden, Linux was in a position that, hey, I need to manage VMs. Hey, I need virtual functions. Hey, I, I want to build middle boxes with Linux right. to, to implement firewalling and so on. And Linux was not built for this at all. Not like, and this is why we've seen a shift towards user space networking because that gives you exactly the same flexibility as something like eBPF. It gives you the programmability. You can bake in whatever you need right now. So with eBPF, we have regained um, that same capability, and, and we can we can provide the same functionality, the same flexibility as user space networking can. can. And, and I think this is the important thing too when you look at the 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 risk that we introduce as we get closer to the kernel. And that's why this beautiful, the right abstraction towards giving programmability, uh, user space access without having to go below because that became one of the biggest sort of linchpins for people to have a run at Docker and, and containers in general for fear that in, it's too close to the kernel. It's too close to the underlying system, which would then potentially expose root level access and uh, and introduce uh, security risks. And this is the interesting thing with networking, virtual networking. It, it started to quote Martin's you know original paper when he when he brought Nicere to the market was that he was bringing a security platform. Networking was the path by which you would achieve the security, but ultimately it's much more security than just routing. Routing is important, of course, but, and then we see this on, on the, when we look at the Cilium project and the stuff that's going to go on in the Kubernetes networking, it's vastly more complex than any networking that we've in the industry had to be exposed to before. Mm -hmm. And so maybe talk about your choice to start Cilium and, and what, what was the original goal to that? And, and what did you how far ahead did you see, you know, as a commercial opportunity when you actually started that project? Yes, I think it's actually, it's, it's almost a perfect context because I think Martin actually plays a role in this. So as I mentioned, I was involved in OpenVis, which was, was, which was the open source project of NYSERA. It was the building block, right? And there, is, there are many, many parallels between OpenVis, which and what we're doing with, with, with Solim, but there are also a couple of um, differences. What we saw while working on, on SDN or network virtualization is that it, first of all, it, it brought a ton of programmability and flexibility into what type of networking can we actually build. So instead of waiting years for new hardware versions or for new iterations of particular hardware to come around, you could now write code and it would be available almost immediately. It didn't really change anything in terms of what type of like terminology or building blocks or concepts are being were, were used. Instead of a physical router, it was now a virtual router. Instead of a physical switch, it was now a, a, a virtual switch. Programmability was around flow tables, which is incredibly similar to what you would do in hardware. It's like it's some data structure that you can program. We were not using arbitrary programs back then, right? It was, here is, to, here is my programmable flow table. If you see this flow, then do this. If you see this flow, then do this. So very, very similar to, to hardware, which I think was absolutely the right incremental step from hardware-based networking into software-defined networking. The reason why we started Solium is because, and I think Martin shares this vision as well, we saw that Martin's vision was only like step one. And there is a natural next step, in particular if containers and Kubernetes 
comes into play. If you have the full power of a general purpose CPU available to you, why don't you use it? Like why restrict yourself to building blocks that are networking specific? eBPF is, is kind of, if you compare um, what OVS enabled network specific programmability, what eBPF enables general purpose or all close to general purpose programmability. So it's actually not networking specific at all. We can do system call filtering, we can do visibility right. tracing, there's Linux Linux security modules uh, written eBPF seccomp is written or there's an eBPF seccomp implementation. It's more than networking, which allows to look at um, like you could call it an SDN 2.0 or whatever. It's just a, a cloud native networking, whatever we want to call it. The next age of networking can benefit from a generic programmability. And I think the biggest, biggest shift overall on a high level from virtualized networking or SDN and what we now see in cloud native networking is that we are removing the assumption that networking is fundamentally about devices or machines, but it is about applications. So instead of arguing, okay, I have some sort of machine, whether that's a VM or a container, and that machine has an IP and we somehow need to connect them, we're now arguing about services, applications, and understanding them and connecting them together. Um, it's, it's a it's a vastly different way of thinking about how to do networking. Um, and the reason why that is required is, is, required is primarily we're, we're running at massively larger scale. So it's, it's even during OpenStack days, there were still kind of the um, uh, pets, pets versus cattle um, right. <laughs> term, right? right? Yeah. That is even, this is a lot more extreme now. Like there's there's absolutely no chance to do any pet naming anymore, um, and even if you if you if you manage your 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 your, your cattle, it has to be to a whole different scale perspective, like a whole different scale. And we can dive into the details how eBPF helps there, but that's that on a high level, that's the biggest shift. That's why we started Solium to really get to a cloud native network level that is that on deeply understands applications and is not fundamentally machine based or um, device based. And it's an interesting thing because I think we've, we, in a way, we've kind of rocketed past IPv6 in its functional solve, right? Like it was meant to solve the problem of addressability, but it was very raw device level addressability. So we we cheated, we got NAT to survive the death of, you know, the address range for IPv4. IPv6 broadly used, of course, in telco and lots of organizations, but the true like application, the L4 to L7, those, this is where the real, you know, as Martine would say, you know, the Goldilocks zone is, you know, we talked about, you know, the right place to address the problem because I think the industry and the development field has arrived there now. But mm -hmm. if, if we look back at OpenStack days, we weren't ready. Like the applications were still being refactored. The using those level like using the application layer as a way to address and access was wasn't known to be the popular way yet and i think in a weird way even like i'd say kubernetes effectively is thriving on the back of openstack because mm -hmm. we learned a lot of hard lessons with what openstack was trying to achieve and the world wasn't ready uh you know so i i, I appreciate that so you, know, you talked about let, let's actually dive in. What does eBPF do for us now that solve this fundamental problem that's, that's deeper than just raw networking? Yes, so I think before eBPF existed, 
the only choice you'd have to dynamically extend the behavior of your Linux kernel was to load a Linux kernel module. And that concept was invented to load device drivers. So if you buy a new piece of hardware, you will need to load the driver codes to support that. And this matters a lot less these days because typically you're running in cloud or often they're running in cloud and you don't, you don't you're not, the, the, the matrix of supported hardware is just much, much, much smaller these days. But that's, that's the concept that still exists. The major downside of that is, first of all, a Linux kernel module is typically bound to a particular kernel version because it will access internal APIs and these APIs are not stable. So as a author of a Linux kernel module, we'll have to modify your code and make it depend or make it function for every new kernel version. But even more severe, it has major security implications. Any bug in a Linux kernel compromises your node. Yeah, your entire system is compromised because a Linux kernel module has exactly the same privileges as native Linux kernel code. eBPF is different. EPPF gives you the same ability of dynamically extending and loading code at runtime to bring in new logic, but it's doing so in a uh, safe and efficient manner. So let's talk about safety first. Um, EPPF is at the core is an x86 alike bytecode, which um, is generic. So it's not specific to what your CPU is running. It's generic. So you can have an eBPF bytecode that implements some logic and you can load that into any Linux kernel, no matter what CPU architecture is powering that kernel. Um, as the kernel receives this bytecode, you will tell the Linux kernel, I want to run this particular piece of code on some event. For example, every time a Linux network device is receiving a packet or every time a packet is being trans transmitted or every time a particular system call is being invoked, that's how system call filtering is being done, or every time a trace point is being hit or every time my particular function in my user space application is being invoked, that's how application tracing is being done and so on. Um, so you tell this to the kernel and then the, the, the first thing the kernel will do is validate whether this program is safe to run. So eBPF is not a carte blanche. You have to comply with the safety rules of eBPF. So the program cannot access arbitrary Linux kernel functions. It can only access a well-defined API, which is stable, which is a subset. And it's not you're not directly calling into other kernel functions. You're call, calling into so-called helpers, which then allow you to interact with the Linux kernel in a uh, secure manner. You cannot uh, loop forever in a eBPF program. So there is support for so-called bounded loops, but it has to it has to be guaranteed that your prog program always runs to completion. You cannot expose arbitrary kernel memory and so on. There's a long list of security requirements that need to pass. Uh, even the program complexity is, is capped. So you cannot run, run a program that takes two minutes to complete. It will completely st stall your kernel. Your program cannot sleep right now and so on. So once it passes those sa safety rules and only if it passes those safety rules is the program loaded. So from that perspective, it's very similar to a container. It's sandboxed. It's, it's not, it doesn't have arbitrary access. It will run in a well-defined, secure, isolated sandbox. And then to talk about the, the efficiency, as I mentioned, eBPF is actually generic, but the Linux kernel will just in time compile it. So 
it will take the generic bytecode and translate that, for example, into x86, 64, or whatever's your, whatever CPU you're currently running. So in the end, you end up with a natively compiled or JIT compiled uh, piece of code that is secure to run, that you can run in a long list of well-defined hook points in the kernel to extend the logic there. But it's one thing that actually is very important, especially now you mentioned, of course, x86-64, which we effectively see as the sort of most broadly used standard at CPU architectures, but that's, I think that's about to rapidly change, right? We're exactly, seeing, yeah. of course, with, we've got the M1 chip on the Apple side, we've got ARM is becoming a much more popular, especially on the cloud side. We've got AWS with their own underlying architectures, uh, Intel, of course, AMD, everybody is coming to the fore now with viable alternatives. And so this flexibility and adaptability and programmability is, is incredibly important because you know we're going to see it in kubernetes especially when we go to the edge there will not be intel architectures at the edge for the most mm -hmm. part it's just not going to happen and this is it's always funny as like i'll say as nerds we love the idea when we when we say arm everybody thinks raspberry pi You're like no 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 there's <laughs> <laughs> there are many many devices uh raspberry pi is a good place to do a little sandbox test of it um but it's actually know, it's actually more it's even it even uh, um unlocks uh, offload and into smartniks, for example, right? If you have this generic piece of bytecode and well, a well-defined API of helpers, that means it all of a sudden becomes offloadable into, for example, smartniks, which is already possible. Right. And that is because the bytecode is generic. It's not bound to anything specific on, on the hardware side. So that, that ties again into something like OpenFlow. It's generic enough so you can offload it. But it's general. It's a lot more general purpose. So it's it's still not networking specific. And I think eBPF has, has struck an ideal balance and an ideal compromise between general purpose bytecode or general purpose instruction set, but still a well-defined API that you can still down or still offload it to SmartNICs because like there is a network program type which is very networking specific, and it's very obvious that from a SmartNIC perspective, you only want to offload those network. You're not going to offload system call filtering to a smart NIC, right? right. Um, I think that's that's very powerful. So the the, the, the chit is not just for x86 versus ARM. It will actually also go down into let's say smart NIC offload, which again can can bring a new security angle into play because all of a sudden you may no longer depend on your your main CPU becoming or being kind of the the privileged piece that is executing a code. It could actually be the smart NICs, which could be in a, in a different, an entirely different trust domain from a, from a security perspective. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up now, because smart NICs are not new to the industry, but they're new in the renewed in the industry. You know, in mm -hmm. the same way that sort of, we've talked about GPU as a potential to do parallel processing for a long time, but it really did take quite a while before it became evolved as a as a broadly adopted and used standard because we maybe it was like the 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 systems the os's the applications didn't line up with being able to use it and smartnik i'm seeing this you know sort of come back to the fore again whereas we probably talked about smartnik offloads and tcp offloading for a long time you know that was back to like even novell you know was trying to tackle mm -hmm. that and and you know and it's i always this is the funny thing too about our industry is that everything old is new again you know we talked about like loadable kernel modules and i remember back in the days of being a novel administrator and running live nlm loads and you could mm -hmm. just dynamically <laughs> load and unload modules as needed and windows created this sort of like 
very locked in monolithic uh, architecture for operating. And now, you know, here we are again, where all of these things are coming together because I think we're all ready for it uh, in a mm -hmm. better way. Now on the, on the, on the side of taking this and then developing a community around it, what's your approach when you create Cilium and want to really get it out there? Because I'm curious, you know, people talk about open source and just putting it on GitHub does not make it open source. Open source is much more around the way in which you engage with the potential other builders, developers, consumers of that product or platform. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly what we believe as well. So when we started Cilium, there was no moment that we developed this for a year internally and then open sourced it. Like there was no open sourcing moment. I, 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 it always, I always find it weird if, 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 if a company open sourcing something is being seen as something very positive because I think it's, it's still better than not open sourcing, but it's not really the ideal model because a lot of the early on design assumptions will have been baked in and it was not open when those happened. What, did, what we did with Solium, I think we invested maybe a couple of weeks, maybe two or three weeks, and then we pushed it out to GitHub and we made a, or we had a first appearance, I think at the open, um, at Linux Foundation Open Source Summit, I think it was called back then. And we talked about, hey, Solium, this is, this is going to be the next gen container networking. These are our, our design assumptions that we made very extreme assumptions, IPv6 only. Um, we're doing load balancing, both east-west and north-south, everything EPPF-based. Um, the fire model, completely different, not IP tables-based, but uh, sec security identity-based, like a lot of fundamentally different assumptions. And we went out there and told the world, this is how we see networking being done in the future for containers. Obviously, not all of the concepts we, we, we have embedded into Cilium are made from us. A lot of them have been derived for example, with Google and Facebook and other big do-it-yourself cloud providers or our big infrastructure companies are doing and how they're running containers successfully for many, many years. And we've taken some of those concepts, made them a bit more general purpose, um, brought in more concepts uh, that may be a bit more specific to uh, back then initially Docker, now um, Kubernetes. Um, and that was the assumption that that's where we, that's how we got out there and said, this is what we're building. If you're interested, join us. And immediately people started joining and were interested um, and a continuous stream or a continuous cycle of feedback and new versions um, came along. So Cilium was really out there and open from the very, very beginning, which is, I think, what led to the, the great open source market fit as well. That Cilium is really addressing what matters now because we have been working with the relevant um, people that have been that have been running containers for a long time already, and they knew the problems that we could learn from them. And you can only do this if you're open from the from from the very beginning. If you're coming out there with a complete solution and you open source it once it's complete, still nice, but you won't get kind of the full benefit of the open source of of the open source community. Now, it brings up an interesting challenge in open communities and open sourcing a platform uh, or product is that at, at some point, there's potential where somebody will want to introduce something into the core that as a maintainer, you may not necessarily agree with. And I'm always curious, how do you 
deal with sort of conflict having done you know so linux development of course one of the most famous hardlined product managers of course linus torvalds uh, effectively the final say on many things that enter mm -hmm. into the the core into the kernel uh we look at uh where there were challenges with docker uh where solomon uh, hikes had taken a very strong approach and at some there eventually there was a, a moment where he and and the team effectively the maintainers had to decide no this will not go into the core it needs to be solved elsewhere where do you do you have you bumped into that and and how would you deal with a potential conflict in what belongs in the core of of cilium perhaps i think every every open source maintainer of any any op, of any successful open source project will deal with problems like this and i wouldn't call them problems actually but like with challenges like this right. um it, uh, it's a it's a, actually a fun fact one of the reasons one of the main motivations for ebpf to be merged into the linux kernel was actually several uh, arguments between very 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 big linux kernel users which were all trying to add additional metrics and additional networking metrics into the Linux kernel for visibility they needed. And there was a huge argument that, okay, you need this metric, but I don't need it. Why should I pay the cost for you to maintain this metric? Right. And eBPF was seen as a solution for this dynamic programmability. If you need this visibility, if you need this control, load it in at runtime. We're only giving you the sandbox to do so safely. And we are using that same concept in Cilium as well. Obviously, there are limits if you are trying to fundamentally change what Cilium does and it has implications, then you will definitely need a, a majority of the existing Cilium committers. But in general, I think, and that is probably true for any open source project, as long as you can ma manage consequences of change as well. And consequences can be performance related, can be maintainability related and so on. It's all about managing those consequences and typically solutions can be found that the consequences are not paid by other others or third parties so if you are if you intend to change something you should also be the one to pay the consequences for for any fallout or for any side effects that's usually a, a, a viable good strategy on how to tackle this in general and can allow the community to um thrive without kind of risking to destroy it because i think and i don't want to um use Docker as a bad example in particular, but I think many many successful open source projects, and Docker is an insanely successful open source project, many of those projects have all suffered at some point from a, I'm successful, this means I know what is best. Right. And I think that is dangerous at some point. You should never forget, or an open source maintainer should never forget that you're not right all the time. You should give others a chance to prove that they're right as well. And sometimes that cannot be done in an email. Sometimes that cannot be done in a GitHub comment or something like that. You need to give them the opportunity to merge code, to expose it to users, and then like drive the or derive the right, the right conclusions from that. So it's all about providing the, a safe um, environment that this can happen without compromising your overall overall open source project. But again, of course, this is easier said than done. But that's that's our that's our our strategy overall. 
Yeah, and it's it's always I feel terrible sometimes when I bring up the Solomon example, where, and I I I can't even remember what the specific was. Where I think it was it might have been the OCI uh, standard being merged, and they said like this is this goes counter to what we believe is you know what belongs in the core, then <laughs> and we all survived it, but it was a it was a very strong moment of clarity as to you know we were it had grown to a point where this difficult question had to be dealt with and as you said this is not a problem so much as a challenge that it, it will mm -hmm. at some point at scale you know need to be dealt with and kubernetes is effectively going goes through that uh you know even the turning over of things to the foundation where like turning over governance this is an interesting challenge where we saw istio going through this battle where you know google and and a lot of the maintainers said no no we're good we're gonna make we're gonna keep a hold of this for a little longer <laughs> and almost in what you talked about the like building for a year and then having your open source moment to a lot of folks it feels like that turning over for governance to the cncf or to the any foundation is that you know it's already open but there's a there's a maturity or uh there is a marked difference in the way that that project will operate now when that happens what so what are your thoughts on you know that sort of right time to open it up or to turn over the governance and control of a particular project i think i i can understand the the legal side of foundations and donating ip and all of that and um there will be a moment where we will do that for for Cilium as well. But if I look at the importance, and that's my very personal opinion, if I look at the importance between governance practice and the legal foundation side, I would say the legal foundation side, maybe 20% of the importance. And probably lawyers will probably disagree with me at, at this point, but I think <laughs> yeah. what, what's way more important to me is that, that, that the, the, the governance model that is lift, who can influence what? is way more important in general. So the code is open source, it's available. If the practice and the rules put in place on who can do what are functioning for the entire ecosystem, then it matters much less who the IP belongs to because let's be honest, depending on where you live in the world, the rules are actually, the law is very different as well. It's a very complex topic. So I would say what we made sure from a still perspective is that we are completely transparent in who gets commit access. How does that process look like? Um, how much do you have to get involved in the project to get commit access? What is decided by committers? What is not decided by, by committers? And then on top of that, living a, a culture where, no, there is not a single maintainer ruling everything. There are certain moments where um, I would say, you, you, as a maintainer, you want to jump in and shortcut something. But if, if there is this fundamental disagreement, there's no maintainer just overruling. That's probably where we are primarily different from a, from a Linux kernel-based model. It's also where, for example, Kubernetes is very different. Kubernetes also has the same very community-style development, very consensus-driven model, a very standardized um, Kubernetes enhancement proposal process on um, I as an individual, and it doesn't doesn't matter where, whether I, where, whether I as an individual working for a large vendor or doing this on my own time can come in and propose something, uh, get consensus, and then do this. If as long as this is very clear, 
I think that actually matters more than the pure foundation side of things. Yeah, and and I think that's the you know having again sort of lived through the the challenges in the way that OpenStack had been you know what belonged in core, what belonged under you know what fit under the big tent, and and we saw a lot of you know difficult learning lessons in how to manage a, a, a massive community with massive numbers of projects that had the potential and, and it's funny you brought up the example of like introducing metrics into the kernel and i remember doing this with through my team you know we were trying to expose additional metrics for cpu and memory utilization inside nova and Silometer. And the first thing that would happen is that they would say, wait a second, I see your email address and I know what your company does. Mm -hmm. This looks very self-serving. And so we actually had to go out of our way to do additional important commits to the core code that were not related to a commercial exploit, you know, because it, it was always seen as like, if the first thing you do has is now creates commercial viability for you, people are a little suspect of your your motives <laughs> to put it in there, uh, which is also this weird balance of, you know, I, I'm a huge proponent for open source and I'm a huge proponent for being able to build successful companies thriving on open source technologies. Uh, so I'm, uh, maybe I'm a little bit more of a, I guess an open source libertarian on, on that side. <laughs> that I do believe that both sides are, are incredibly important because the commercial side supports continuing to maintain and grow those communities in, in the same way. So, and yeah, I think this, that the most important aspect here is that there must be, there must be a contract between everybody who is interested from a financial perspective in, in around an open source project and the open source community. Those two are not, they can be a lot of overlap, but they're not the same. Um, so how does that contract typically look like? If it is, if the open source community is not sure whether work that is being done by the community is then exploited by somebody else, um, then people will typically get out, right? Like, why should I enable somebody? And it doesn't even have to be one vendor versus another vendor. It can also be just somebody spending their own uh, personal time right. um, or even if people are working for a vendor it's not necessary that the vendor comes in but mainly kind of, I'm, I'm investing my motivation my energy I don't want to I don't want to feel abused so there, there must be a contract what is like how does the how is the like everybody understands that for in order for an open source project to be successful the the companies backing that open source project, whether that's the startup behind it, that whether that's um, the company employing the people working on it, then there needs to be a balance. And that balance needs to be defined in a contract that can be a foundation model, but typically takes more. It should be, or it's best to actually write this down um, to make it clear for everybody. So people get into the project, they know like how does the commercial situation look like? And then you cannot really change that fundamentally. So you cannot just all of a sudden like close something and so on um th that is key and that that ensures and i think openstack was was very early on in in the world where there was not a lot of experience with that if we look at the linux kernel before most commercial entities coming in they were seeing as something hostile right like yeah. nobody was supposed to make money off off the linux kernel and openstack was a, a very large successful project that 
did not really have any experience beyond that, or the open source community did not have experience beyond that. We're in a fundamentally different place now. And you can see you know, it was possible to see this evolve from like Linux kernel, OpenStack, Docker, um, Kubernetes, and so on. And uh, I guess it's a perfect, you know, link to the move now to create isovalent. And how did, I'm always curious, where is the inception point where you say, I see what we've got. We've got a fantastic, you know, technology that we can build in the open and it will solve a use case or a number of use cases. And we see the business value now. And then that decision to say, I believe we can wrap a commercial, you know, entity and create success in, in that side of it as well. Yeah, I think the, the, the main reason why it was clear that we want to build a company around it relatively early on is because we wanted to make sure that the open source project has a lot of broad impact, right? Like it's actually, it's bringing some change. The change we wanted, the change we saw and we still believe in as being the right model. Uh, that's probably the main, main reason for a lot of software engineers creating open source projects in the first place. But that means you need, you need people on the project these people, they, they, everybody wants to receive a salary. So you need, you need a company behind it, right? Um, yeah. That was the, the, the kind of the driver for, okay, let's have a company. And overall, it was, I think, clear. And, and this is not something groundbreaking new, but if you are the, the networking layer of large infrastructure, you're at the center of everything. Like you're incredibly important and absolutely critical. There is no point, I think, in assuming that somebody's not willing to pay you money for the guarantee that this very crucial layer is working. <laughs> right. like, um, simply or for the same reason that like the Linux distribution or the cloud provider, like all of those well-defined critical layers, there will always be money fl flowing into it. So it, it simplifies the problem down to, okay, how should the product look like? Um, is it like a support only agreement? Is it a support plus open core model and so on? Those are, I think, are all nuances. And yes, it matters in the end, but it's actually a bit less important in the, on, from a high, high level perspective. What's important is we wanted to build the, the next generation networking layer for the upcoming cloud native world. And if you are successful with that, there is definitely room for a, for a, for a company that was our our BAUS-based assumption, and that's definitely been rendered valid. So we, we didn't struggle at all to, to find ways to productize it without, without um, conflicting with the core belief around open source, without, without violating that contract that, we, that I just talked about. Like, this is open source. We're not going to violate the trust that, that the open source community is putting into us. Um, it, was, it was actually not challenging to come up with that at all, I would say. Now, when did you, like, do, this is very much built on first principles thinking versus, you know, what we generally see in most of, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of projects that are in open source, especially there, there are incremental improvements on there, but you, you are, you're taking on a fundamentally different approach with mm -hmm. a strong viability, but there's a, there's now this path that has to be mapped out in order to gain adoption, see this uh, to success at scale. Where, where does that background come for you in being able to take on such a challenge and think in that real solid first principles methodology? 
So this is where this is where the team comes in, and it's 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 interesting because it kind of depends on each other. So um, from as a as a business person, what is incredibly appealing is if you succeed with bringing on an entire new shift of something and building a new platform. And I would call SDN is something like this. Like it's a major industry shift. Um, Kubernetes containers and what we're doing, we're seeing that as another like insanely big shift. In every time such a shift happens, it means that, you mentioned this before, like we're, it's the same problems that come up over and over and over again. And we're not solving fundamental different problems but we're changing how we solve them and changing how we solve them leads to different products, which means you have an opportunity to, to, to as a new vendor to come in. So as we, as we succeed with a, with a big shift overall industry, we also get the chance to retool everything to provide new tooling around visibility, firewall, networking, load balancing, and so on. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. We're seeing all the, the, all the traditional networking layers all the solutions that are out there being rewritten in eBPF. And obviously as a company, we want to be, we want to have the, the, the biggest possible part of that. In order to achieve this, you need the, the best possible team, right? So there's not a single person out there who knows, who knows uh, or understands how to do all of this. So from the very beginning, we made sure that we get, we made a key focus to make sure that, that, that we have by far the best team. And uh, from our perspective, we've definitely achieved that. Um, and it's probably what we're most proud of as well. We have the team to drive this. It's not me or Dan or, or some one person individual being able to drive that vision. It's the overall team with a lot of experience having built this for the, for the last uh, 15 years in different ages. Applying that to, to this new world uh, allows us to bring, this, uh, to bring this, new, this, this new shift. Obviously coupled with um, fantastic investors, Martin, Google, Cisco. There's right. a lot of experience, a lot of um, um, knowledge and experience coming in, allowing us to do this. Yeah, and it's uh, it's funny we, when we think in the entrepreneurs and startup world, they talk about the, they talk the three T's: team, TAM, and technology, right? And then, mm -hmm. and it goes in that important order, in that you have to have belief that the team can execute on a vision. They can have this vision, they share it, and then they can execute as a team and build an organization, especially as you grow a company too, because that's a it's a fundamentally different thing than just solving a problem at a very deep technical layer. Then of course there's the total addressable market, which is important. You, know, you yes. talked about sort of the scale at which this is being implemented. I walk into customers every day; they're doing these like large-scale Kubernetes environments, and it's it's amazing to watch. Even where we would call it fully productionized implementations, but they're very early days in so much of the way they operate that infrastructure, and especially when it comes to networking security it's effectively an open field. Yes. And, and it's, it, you know, so they are simply taking the best available path at the moment. And it's more finger crossing that it won't go sideways than it is in true belief that they've already solved the problem. And then yeah, of that, course the technology is like you talked about, like for the power of eBPF, the power that's being done in the core unlocks those three beautiful things of the right people, the right need, you know, at a, at an industry scale, and then put all those three together. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah, it's exactly how we see this as well. And uh, the the number of 
what we will call traditional enterprises uh, coming in, into Kubernetes last year has been mind blowing. I think we've seen this with, with any sort of open source wave. It, it, it always looks a bit brighter than it is in the very beginning. Like everybody yeah. tries to claim I'm running, in, I'm running in, 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 in production where maybe it is true, maybe it is not true, nobody really knows, but it always takes a couple of years longer than everybody wants to. Last year has been absolutely amazing. Uh, like the the profile has fundamentally changed, and the profile of of customers and 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 users coming into Kubernetes is is easy to classify just based on the needs they have. Whether it's like cloud only, um, everything greenfield, or here is here is my long list of existing enterprise needs. I need all of the same right. with con with um, container awareness, right? And all of a sudden, instead of having one product, you're trying to figure out, okay, we can build five new products. Which should we build first? Yeah. And that's exactly where the overall market is is right now. It's amazing to see the, uh, like I said, the 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 variations in the field uh, at scale. And I remember even like I said, you know, Kubernetes. I still bump into this question a lot of times. Somebody will say like, I I'm not sure that it's going to be able to, you know, scale. And like I'm fairly sure that it will scale, but you know, what's your sense of scale? And you ask the person quite often, they're like, "Well, we've got like you know, two thousand, three thousand workloads." I'm like you're, you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably run it on VirtualBox. You're good. Don't worry about that. You know, but that OpenStack faced the same battle of like at scale as a that became this detractor of like I don't know how it's going to work at scale. Like, well, we haven't discovered scale yet, and 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 we're getting there, and thus we saw federation had to happen because it yep. was a profound problem once we saw the adoption grow and you know our back became a, you know uh, the way of dealing because obviously it's first is scalability then there's identity and then you now are coming in with the problem that we've had all the way through that we've just been denying which was security and networking is going to be mm -hmm. the biggest exposure for risk in building and operating not just Design, I can get it to work once, but how does it work on day two and beyond in an adaptive application focused world? The model, the old model is will not grow. And that's, yeah. you know, while it may work in a, it may work today, it's brittle. And, and, and I've seen it, you know, where people are really, really starting to fight the struggle. So yes, when, when Cilium opened up, a lot of eyes widened and a lot of people smiled saying, I think we have something amazing here. Uh, so I, I, I'm excited by, by what's ahead for it. Yeah, I think you actually brought up a very interesting point. Like what is scale? Like, what, like most people think about number of machines or like yeah. size of infrastructure about scalability first. And I think that was probably quite accurate during virtualization. I think the biggest shift from, or the biggest change from virtualization to where we are right now is that scale is no longer just infrastructure size, but it's also multiple teams deploying several times a day, massive complexity around the CI/CD pipeline. Everything is automated. A mix of multi-tenant clusters and teams deploying in parallel, ideally completely separated from a security perspective, but then still uh, using, for example, Kafka clusters, which are shared. Okay, coming from a world where everybody's assumed to be, everything is assumed to be isolated, right? The teams are kind of assume, I, own my, I have my namespaces, everything is kind of, uh, isolated away and then all of a sudden they share they share resources as again and so on when we talk about scalability it's mostly around that and then if you if you bring in edge clusters or multi-cloud or even just bridging 
legacy workloads running in, let's say, a bare metal data center or even, let's say, EC2 VM fleets or something, how do I connect this to my new style Kubernetes workloads? That's another form of scale because all of a sudden you're required to provide security for, let's say, virtual machines, and you can no longer assume to have all of the new style building blocks, but you still need to scale. So you now kind of need to solve scalability problems on traditional workloads as well, which is something we're working on or have just, just released a couple of weeks ago. If we talk scale, it's not just the size of infrastructure. It's really the combination of overall infrastructure, team complexity, policy complexity, CICD complexity, churn, how many times to deploy and so on. Yeah, it became the sort of what OVS had to build the challenge of like the, the scale was not in the number of devices and the endpoints necessarily. It was, it was the size of the TCAM table and, and what it had yeah. to store and distribute. And that was became the thing. It wasn't just the importance of the size of the that that table and like, you know, but the ability to distribute it in using consensus, understanding the foundations of Raft and, and like the things that we now in, the development methodologies are, are coming together. We've got Kafka that's being broadly used. We're seeing much more, you know, the message bus used to be for, you know, MQ, you know, mm -hmm. back in the days of, of mainframe integrations. And, and that became the biggest area where people were thinking that way. And now we're seeing the application scale is, is, is growing. But you brought up a really great point it's not going to be all there. It's not going to be all greenfield. We are going to see a hybrid in a sense that is traditional, you know, we will call it legacy virtualized workloads and cloud native and just even cloud IaaS and cloud platform as a service. They all have core needs, which is where, like I said, you, you, you and the team have got something where everybody's going to need you mm -hmm. <laughs> and by adapting a new technology, you know, adding support for any other virtualizations, you know, hypervisor or whatever, it immediately opens up this world in a beautiful way where now those companies that want to use this, they don't have to get rid of one thing to adopt another. Because I think that's the biggest risk we run into as an industry is this unfortunate belief that you will build data center B, migrate data center A, and we will refactor it while doing that and just it mm -hmm. wasn't it didn't work and uh, so w where will the importance of legacy workloads come into play when we talk about cilium and and isovalence story i think it's a lot less important from a pure cilium perspective right because open source projects there's, there's we're always kind of the beacon out there like pointing the way um this is how it should be and and uh, like concepts and vision all are on this is the ideal world right okay everything is our security identity basis there is no ip based filtering anywhere and so on that's the ideal that's a perfect world uh if we go into what solutions isovalent and what problems isovalent solves it's often a enterprise that might not move quite as quickly as it wants to wants to have kubernetes and has been assuming oh i need actually need to migrate and the migration and the move has been has been slow because there's complications. It's actually not quite as straightforward to take an application that is running in a VM and just containerize that. Right. There are side effects. Like one side is just the build building the container image. That's that's easy. There are side effects. Um, like being able to assist in that and say, okay, take 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 your new workloads, take the new applications that you're writing. We allow you to embed your existing workloads 
and represent them in your new Kubernetes world just as they would be a, as, just as if they would be running as a container. And I'm kind of eyes open up. Oh, amazing! Like so, I don't have to block my my project on my unsuccessful migration. I can start green, uh, represent the workloads in my new environment. I can build the security modeling and the security audit, all of that in the new world, while still respecting the old legacy world as well. It's it's a bit more on the commercial and, and, and enterprise side, not because it's actually all open source, but more, mainly from an interest perspective, it's a lot more enterprise use case driven and a lot less about um, op open source visionary mind share. There's a lot of very exciting technology in that as well. I think it's just from a, if we talk at, let's say open source conferences, there's a bit less excitement around that legacy. That's right. That, that legacy workload, workload path. Yeah, we always, uh, I always laugh when people talk about legacy, and I said my my line is that you call it legacy, I call it production. You know, like this is <laughs> we, we, I I worked in environments when I I started at uh, at an insurance company in the tech side, and and they, I was on the distributed team when it was early days of distributed. This was like, uh, you know, NT early NT Windows NT days, and we were literally called like this team that was on a fad of like building these distributed like. The main, you know, like the business is in the mainframe. The data is in the mainframe. We, you know, we've got more ETL people than we have distributed systems people. So it doesn't make sense to you these distributed IT ops people, you know, that are putting these servers all over the place. Well, next thing you know, <laughs> we had 2,500 servers and complex applications and multiple environments. And yeah, I was like, oh, okay, this is not a fad. This is actually going to go. But it didn't upend the mid-tier, the mainframe, the mid-frame, like all of those things were will continue to exist. It wasn't really a a war over the hill. It was a war over a place on the hill mm -hmm. and the importance of that. And that's why, like you said, every enterprise organization has big eyes with the, like, we are going to refactor everything. We're going to move to completely cloud native. And then they realize you couldn't even, if you just shut the doors down, if you could stop the world, it would still take two years to do it but you're not mm -hmm. stopping the world because business goes on, especially in the course of the last year. So this, I, you chose to launch a company, not even when you didn't know that there was potentially a, a risk, but like you were very much in the throes of a worldwide pandemic and the world mm -hmm. was, the world of business is different. How did, did, like what influences then came in when you're trying to build your plan and think about where you were going to implement? I'm curious if it obviously came into play, but like how much does that now influence the way you think about the first year and two years of, of growth? The, the decision when to launch was entirely done based on market traction. Like right. as soon as we saw that, and that's why I mentioned last year, we saw just a very steep increase in like traditional enterprise use cases coming up. Um, and we saw all of a sudden we were asked to do, okay, these are the next five products that we should be building. What is the most important one? Or like, where can we, what, what will be the most successful one? That was the clear signal. That's now the market is ready to launch. Um, maybe the, the signal would have been even stronger if COVID did not happen, but it was, it was even, even with COVID, it was very, very strong. I could obviously make an argument that overall IT spend is going up. Like there's more budget right. being spent on automation. How specifically that actually affects us, whether it's positive or negative, we probably don't even know. There are probably a couple of customers that um, 
deprotized, they were deeply impacted, and there were others that were were actually um, um, insanely uh, insanely enabled. Uh, let's say retailers with online shops, for example. Right. Um, so I'm not sure how how that like below the line what that actually is. COVID impact overall. I think our our immediate main concern was just employees. Let's right. make sure that everybody in the team comes uh, through this pandemic with a sane mind, and that is still the the, the top priority. So. Um, the business side, well, obviously always in, incredibly important as it comes to COVID, I think the making sure that we, that we get everybody in the team through this has been almost exclusive focus and the company thriving and the company being successful is obviously a part of it, but it's not, it's not the only part. Yeah. And that's again, a sort of a testament to the, the team you've chosen and built that you wrap around it, which is, which is, you know, that has to be at its core, you know, where your first priority, it's, uh, it's always difficult because when we talk about like th positive things that have come as a result of what we've exposed ourselves to as a society, right? And I never want to say positive, but I think of it as like positive lessons and where we have opportunities to create new things. There's, we are still, we have not felt the full brunt of the effect of you know, on the world of, of COVID and the, the commercial aspects, especially when you get like large enterprise deals, people often say like, oh, you know, we had a, we had a tough quarter. Uh, so, but you know, that's, that's when we'll feel the effect. Like, no, you're going to feel the effect in three quarters because mm -hmm. the prospecting you're not doing now won't be known until, you know, those deals don't close for nine to 12 to potentially even longer months. So now this is the interesting thing too. And your, your distributed team, uh, how, how does the, the time zone, like how do you, how do you work together? How do you collaborate as a group? So first of all, it's, it's been something that's been familiar to myself. Like I've always worked okay. in remote teams. I've always managed remote teams as well. So that, that was natural. Um, the, some of the principles that I'm aware of, which, which I think work in general is you cannot have a mix. So you cannot have some in office, some remote if you have remote, then all the information needs to be accessible. The discussion needs to be accessible to, to, to everybody. Um, that was not really a struggle. I think we're clearly, even, even we had uh, pre-COVID, we had about half the overall our company was working in an office, but even there at dual headquarters, we have a, 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 an HQ in Mountain View and one in uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Even that was, was uh, distributed. I think the the, the challenge um, that, that any open source team faces as it grows, and it's actually not specific to a startup or a company, but overall to open source projects is you need to allow people to work in their own time zone. And you need to make sure that even if people choose to work certain hours, they need to be able to get involved, have a say in a safe way without requiring them to be on constantly. So like, there needs to be some standardization around where discussions are happening, um, when it is safe to sign off, like not just right. having a impromptu discussion around something and come to a conclusion and that's it. And whoever was, was online was online and everybody else didn't have a say. Those are the important parts. It's not really COVID, COVID specific. I think it, it, for teams who have been entirely physical and then remote, that's a bigger challenge because they're not used to this. 
we have been used to this even 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 before that as well. So we are, I think, quite typical for for a startup of, of our of, of our size and, and an open source project. So we're using Slack, we're using GitHub, we're using uh, like SaaS based uh, SaaS based SaaS based document editors and so on. Um, that that's 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 our style, and obviously that's been hugely helpful in kind of not having to adjust too much as we as we went through the the, the changes and got people to work from home more yeah this is the uh the the one again sort of a, a positive of the negative that we've experienced as a world is that it hopefully will open the doors to teaching people what collaboration is not meetings and people often say to me like oh you know you've got a lot of meetings you must enjoy it because you like people i said no i like collaboration not meetings and meetings are often not collaborative they're just simply you know powerpoint reviews and and they're they're not really and like i said they're point in time there's an assumption that there's a thing that leads up to it and then stuff that comes out of it and it's very much dependent on who is physically in that room and mm -hmm. when you're the one per i've been a remote worker for a, a decade you know from different through dim, different companies and it was first allowed and sort of enabled because i had I'd built the team internally and I'd had this experience and then I had to move across the country. And I was suddenly in a different time zone where there was a smaller IT team. And it was like, okay, I would never have been hired in the remote location, but I was allowed to move. Mm -hmm. And then from that point on, it was like, oh, this actually works great. You know, as long as we collaborate, communicate, and like you said, the respect the the time zones and the offline hours, because that's the biggest risk, I think, especially in a startup, is that yeah. Offline hours are are something that are in the it's like the attention economy. Attention is the one thing that people uh, are seeking, and and a little bit of offline time is is especially necessary. Yeah, I think uh, some of it you want a good mix, right? I think the thrill of a startup is a little bit of uh, like burning fire. Let's yeah. let's like all hands on that. Let's fix it. I think some of it is actually exciting, but it has to be sustainable. Like it cannot be the standard model. It cannot be you cannot operate in that model day to day. Like that doesn't work. I think overall, I think the, the the main struggle we have been going through with COVID is to make sure that the people who have who re working remote was not the norm before to make sure that they don't feel completely isolated. Because to, like before the split was very clear, people who enjoy to be a bit isolated work on their own, they would typically work from home primarily, right? And the people right. who don't like that model, they would primarily work from an office and that worked great. That was like kind of a, a model that would like naturally work for everybody. Now, if you force one of the two models onto everybody, um, all of a sudden, you have to take care of the people where that model is not natural. So that has been one, one of the major focus and with like, um, team activities and making sure that people still feel kind of part of the company, part of the team, that has been helpful, but it's um, it's obviously very difficult to replace physical physical encounters. Yeah, it, in an interesting way, when it comes to the event ecosystem, and it's funny, I remembered, you know, the first time walking by, I forget which location it was, it was at KubeCon, uh, and I saw Dan and and the, it was there, and, you know, with the the small Stillium booth, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and and I remember it was like, hey, all right, uh, some familiar friends and faces, and, and I thought, this is exciting, and I remember those days, but the the advantage i think as an industry that we have now is that the event is not about the best t-shirt the best swag the best party because unfortunately it, it it creates a challenge for new 
organizations. Like you come to an event, you want to showcase something, you're important to the ecosystem, but then you've got a, a massive incumbent vendor and, you know, good on them, right? Like I, I respect them all and, and I, I work tightly with all of them. But when a, a Dell, a VMware, a Cisco, uh, you know, comes in and they have a $2.4 million marketing budget for KubeCon mm-hmm. and you and I go there and we have a $2.400 marketing budget for, <laughs> like we are, we want to be effective in the community and you're effectively competing for attention with, you know, somebody who's got jugglers in their, in their booth and, and has amazing t-shirts. Like it's, I like in a way that we've democratized access to the community through online events. It's not easy though, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and I definitely miss, there is a real collegial part of being in person, going to evening events, having like, when we do SIGs and you do, you know, working groups, it's very different when you can all grab a coffee, go to a boardroom, sit down mm-hmm. together. It's the, there is a genuine difference in like how we collaborate in those short packed periods of time. But uh, you know, we'll find it. We'll find it again in, in some balanced way. But uh, for the interim, it's uh, certainly going to be this way for a while. Yeah, I think many. I think like everybody is kind of just longing to get back to conferences. Not, I think not for seeing vendors, but just meeting everybody. So conferences, yeah. we never, and that's probably also why COVID is not really impacting us that much. We never did that much prospecting at conferences. To us, KubeCon was around meeting everybody. Like uh, we were basically at, 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 at the booth and people would stop by, stop by you would have a chat. Obviously some people would still kind of come in or could t- tell me about Cillium, but I think after the third or second um, KubeCon, most people knew about Cilium. So you were yeah. not pitching them about Cilium. It was like, hey, you will have a chat. Or how is it going? What are you doing? And and that was about it. And you would maybe have dinner afterwards. And so that's that's what we miss. The the actual, the convincing the industry and the world of Cilium is not happening at conferences. Maybe the, like the conference talks will help uh, to some extent. But conference talks, they can be replaced we don't need a physical gathering just for the talks, right? You could right. even replace that with blog posts or some other form of, of, of content. The convincing, and there's actually an int- a very important point. The open source model has won before the big vendors com- uh, did come in, which means just because the, the, the big vendors now came in and threw a lot of marketing dollars at it at open source, it doesn't change that. The open source model is still the same. Like the, the the way successful open source projects are chosen is not just because of marketing dollars. Yes, you can change change it a bit, right? If you talk publicly about it. Um, but I would say, say even for very, very successful projects like Kubernetes, it's not the Google marketing dollars. No, it's right. because of Google, right? Google is clearly known as being able to operate at a really large scale. And the assumption that all of that experience went into Kubernetes, that's why Kubernetes has this standing, not because of the Google marketing dollars. Right. And I think that's why that's why doing an open source startup is re- still really, really compelling, extremely compelling, because you're not really only competing on the marketing side and so on. You can you can win with superior open source technology, which is which is 
maybe why we get the number one question, how did you manage to get sodium where it is without any marketing efforts? Until uh, Neela joined us last year, we had no marketing whatsoever, like literally nothing. And it still allowed us to, 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 be, to get known, to actually get a very, very good, good position overall. And the conferences were, were kind of a minor role in that. I think what we really miss is the, 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 the meeting friends aspect. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely the, in the same way that, uh, I know in my own marketing team, we do customer meetings continuously at every stage of, of the cycle of, you know, whether it's, you know, pre-sales, post-sales. And it's because that is my open community, even in a proprietary, you know, startup. I have to, I have to listen to who's interested and really genuinely have a listening role in in what they're doing, what are the other things they're solving, even outside of what we're doing, because it it helps to me to understand, you know, what are what are other challenges that need to be solved and and it can go beyond. And and like I said, that's that to me was the when you go to those events, like you said, the the talks can be replaced. What what can't be is that, you know, hey, so this funny thing happened to us the other day in, in production. Like that stuff never no one blogs about that or because it's it is very impromptu. Uh, you know, it's good. And it's funny, I remembered so when when uh I, I talked with Neela quite a bit and uh and he mentioned you know, uh, you know, as I have this very interesting looking company. And as soon as he said the name, I was like, I go, 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I go, you're, you're going to a great place with a great team. Uh, and Thomas, thank you. This has been fantastic. Uh, I, I'm definitely looking forward to all of the good things that are coming next. 2021 is going to be a, a build year for a lot of, for the world, uh, for the team, uh, and for the industry. But, uh, you know, we'll catch up again as we get further into the year, because I'd love to get caught up as as you continue to grow and, and see, you know, what's new as as adoption increases and, and where you see the industry, too, because that, again, in the listening sense, I'd love to hear your stories on implementations and, and where we are seeing new challenges that maybe have not yet been discovered because we haven't hit that scale yet. Mm hmm. Thanks a lot, Eric. This has been a an, like a really exciting um, con conversation. Uh, maybe to close out for those that want to learn more about Cilium and EVPF, Perfect. I think there's a, a, a one good place uh, to get started: Cilium.io or EVPF.io. Uh, op open source resources with guides, tutorials, talks, references, and so on. So if you want to dig deeper, that's a good that's a good way to get started. Yeah, and I'll make sure I have links in the in the show notes as well for folks to get in because uh, the, this is the beauty part about these things is you can read the papers behind the technology and effectively you can sort of see the, how the story played out with the team far before you know we we saw it real. It's a, it's amazing to watch how uh, this, and that's the, I'm always amazed by, like we talk about the joke of the ten year overnight success of any company, <laughs> and it happens in the same way with technologies that these have been this has been vetted out uh you know maybe on a university campus for a long time, and like that was when we saw o v s and and how that the inception of o v s was far before you know it was a product attached to it it was uh, it had to be thought about intellectually for a long time, and then is this viable is this necessary? 
you know, and then we see it come into play and, and same thing. So Cilium is an exciting project. And I said, I've got a team member when I said, Hey, you know, they said, I'm looking at the Cilium thing. It's fantastic. I'm like, let me know. I can hook you up with the team because you, we definitely want to get involved. So again, Thomas, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, yeah, for folks, definitely check out Cilium.io. Uh, keep your eyes on isovalent. I see big things coming and uh, for good reasons. You are, uh, you're, you're a good team. You're a great person uh, and you're, you're solving problems, which are, are something that are, we are all going to be a little bit closer to than maybe we realized a couple of years ago. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, thanks. Thanks a lot, Eric.